me challenge you to turn to the 119th Psalm today. Uh, it's the longest psalm in your Bible. It's the longest chapter in your Bible. It's 176 verses in that one chapter. And depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading from, it is very near the dead center of your Bible, Psalm 119 is. So it's fitting that that center chapter is all about God's Word, His law, His statutes, His precepts, which are all different ways to refer to Scripture. Psalm 119, 130 says this, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Which is why we have called our scripture, scripture engagement initiative this year, The Unfolding. As a church family, we've committed to engaging the unfolding revelation of God's Word at a deeper level than ever before. And a part of that engagement is a reading plan that we're walking through together. We're reading the Bible from cover to cover together as a church family. And if, you, we, if you're not a part of that, join us. All of those resources are available at a website we've created, theunfolding.bible. Uh, you can actually download the reading plans and all the things that we're doing right there. Join us on the journey. Last week on that reading plan, over the course of about six days, we read through Psalm 119 in its entirety. And today, I think it would be fitting for us to open our hearts to what the psalmist has to say about the importance and priority of God's Word in our life. Over the last 30 plus years as a pastor, I've seen a lot of people who profess Christian faith that are as selfish and messed up as everybody else. They express a belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They profess belief in His Lordship. But there's very little change in their life because their beliefs have never turned into character. Beliefs don't produce character. Beliefs have to be acted on to build and change character. The only way to turn beliefs into character is through practices. And we call those Christian practices spiritual disciplines. Practices like prayer, worship, the study of the word, and there are so many more spiritual disciplines or Christian practices that produce character. But today I want us to look at what Psalm 119 says to help us better understand the practice or discipline of engaging God's word and how doing so is supposed to impact our everyday life. If you want to turn your belief into character, you need to recognize the majesty of God's Word. If you never see the majesty of Scripture, you'll never unlock its secret and you'll never tap its power. And Psalm 119 reveals several truths about the majesty of Scripture. I'm just going to point out a couple. Number one, God's Word is authoritative. Every part of Scripture is absolutely authoritative for all times, all places, and for all people. Look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. When we see that word law, we think about the Ten Commandments, or we think about the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, the Pentateuch, or often called the law. But that's not what Psalm 119 is referring to. Psalm 119 refers to the whole Bible. The Bible as a whole is the law of God. There are a couple places even in Jesus' teaching where he quotes the Psalms. And we know the Psalms to be poems. And they're hymns. They're songs. That's what a Psalm is, a song. So the book of Psalms in your Bible is a song book. Okay, we know that's what they are. But in both places that I'm thinking about where Jesus is teaching and he says, it is written in your law 
And then he quotes from the Psalms as if the Psalms are part of God's law. The vast majority of the Bible is not written in the form of law. It's in the form of narrative or history or poetry. But don't overlook the fact that the Scripture refers to itself in its entirety as the law of God. Even Jesus referred to the Psalms as law. Why is that so important? Because it means the whole of Scripture is authoritative. Law is synonymous with authority. It means these aren't just suggestions. That It means that God's law, His Word, is binding on us. Some of you may remember the blockbuster movie fan franchise, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean, and there was a running joke throughout all four movies in that series about the Pirates Code. And as sketchy and drunken as these swindlers were, they were all supposed to abide by the Pirates Code, but they kept breaking the code. And when somebody would ask them, aren't you breaking the Pirates Code? They would say, oh, we don't see it. We, we only see it as a guideline, Okay. It was a funny joke throughout the series, but sadly, that's the way a lot of people see the Bible. It, it's not the authority in their life. It's simply an easily compromised guideline, but that's not how the Scripture refers to itself, and that's not how Jesus taught the Scripture. He taught the Bible as authoritative. Secondly, Psalm 119 points to the majesty of Scripture by telling us that God's Word lasts forever. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. That word statutes gets the point across really well because it sounds like the word statue. It's permanent. It, it endures. It lasts. Verse 152 says, Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. The Bible, God's law, his command, his words, they are statutes and they last forever. Why is that so important? Because it means God's word wasn't just for a particular group of people at a specific place at a unique time in history, as if today now it is outmoded and irrelevant. For the word of God to be called a statute means that we cannot let, listen to this, we cannot let our cultural moment sit in judgment over what parts of the Bible are still valid and what parts are not. We have to let the Bible sit in judgment over what parts of our culture are valid and what parts of our culture are not. The Bible is authoritative. It lasts forever. Psalm 151, all your commands are true. And just to drive that point home, verse 60, 160 says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Not the ones we want to pick and choose, but all of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. And that's just another way to say the scriptures. The law and the prophets were the scripture. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. The iota is the smallest mark in the Greek alphabet. It's not even a letter. It's just a mark. It's the smallest stroke of a pen. It's even smaller than the dot over the I of a lowercase i in English. Jesus is saying, not the least scrap of ink in God's law will pass away until its purposes are achieved. 
And he's saying, this is the eternally binding word of God. So don't ever think it's just a suggestion or a guideline that you don't have to follow. For Jesus, Scripture is absolutely authoritative. Scripture is majestic because of its authority. Scripture is majestic because of its eternal nature. It lasts forever. Scripture is majestic because it is the king's decree. It's the very words from the mouth of God. These these are not loose guidelines. They are binding on us. So why do I keep coming back to that? They're not guidelines. They're binding on us. Because this is what our culture loves to hate about the word of God. The authority of the scripture is totally unacceptable to the spirit of this age. People wrestle with an all-true, authoritative word of God. And they usually have two major objections. Objection number one, believing in an authoritative scripture that is binding on my life is way too confining. Because people want to argue. They want to express their own opinions. They want to push back. They want to negotiate. They want there to be a comment section like Facebook underneath the verse so they can give God their opinion. I mean, I mean anything, if there's not give and take, if, if, anything less to them is deadening and confining. But both the psalmist and Jesus say just the opposite. Until you see the majesty of Scripture and absolutely accept its authority, you will never tap its power, a power that is intended to liberate you. It doesn't confine you. It frees you. It's life-giving and will initiate you into spiritual intimacy, not deadness. Recognizing the majesty of God's Word gives you access to both freedom and intimacy. Look at verse 45. I walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. That's totally against what most people think when it comes to freedom. But the psalmist says, the more I submit to God's precepts, the more free I become. But how is that possible? How is submission to the authority of God's word freeing rather than confining? Let me give you two reasons. First, submission to the authority of the word of God is culturally liberating. How? Well, think about this. Lately, I've seen a few old articles, you know, the actual newspaper articles that somebody has taken from previous generations and posted them just to see what we would think about them. They're from our great-grandparents' era, articles from local newspapers, the New York Times, the Dallas Morning News, and, and it was normal news at the time they would put in the, the editorial section or whatever. And, and here's one of them I recently, there are several ones, but here's one of them I recently saw. It was a whole article telling housewives how to treat their husbands when he comes home from a hard day's work. It was a real article. I mean, and, and, I, and I read them now and I laugh. It's almost embarrassing. And I thought, man, if the Dallas Morning News ran that article tomorrow, there would be a protest and they would burn the place down. If you go back two or three generations in your family, there are several social and cultural things that were normal to them then that are utterly embarrassing to you now. So were those people that wrote those editorial pages 70 or 80 years ago bad people? No. They were people of their time. They were trapped in a moment in history, unable to escape the limits of what their culture said was right and true. And they were in an echo chamber, surrounded by people who were saying the exact same thing. So they were unable to critique their culture or their moment in history. So let me ask you a question. You do realize that a lot of the stuff that is important to you right now is going to be an utter embarrassment to your great-grandchildren. 
How aware are you of that reality? You need to be. Or maybe you're like the cultural elitist today who think that our culture is the enlightened one and that we have now become awakened and, and all of us are living in the ultimate cultural moment in history right now. As if the process that's been going on for hundreds of years is now somehow going to stop because our culture is now woke. And if that's what you believe, let me ask you another question. How are you going to critique where you are, your moment? How are you going to escape your cultural moment in light of all of history and not be blinded by this moment in history? So if we can't trust our moment in history to be right, and if we can't trust our culture to accurately judge itself, what better way to step outside our cultural moment than by looking through the lenses of a text that have liberated millions of people for centuries in every culture? Why not adopt that text as the authoritative vantage point of your life and let that text critique our moment in history? For those of you that see the Bible as regressive or primitive or irrelevant to modern times, the height of irony is that many of the cultural issues that are causing you to take that stance and reject the Bible as the Word of God, those very issues are going to be an embarrassment to your great-great-grandchildren. Because culture changes. People of one culture and time are arguing all the time with people of another culture and time because culture is always changing. But the word of God is eternal. It is the same. It is the same for all people of all times and all places. Can't you see how believing in the authority of Scripture is culturally liberating? It gives you a transcendent place from which you can critique your culture, your moment in history. And it's the only way you can keep from being blinded and enslaved and shackled by this cultural moment. Submission to the authority of God's word is culturally liberating. But second, submission to the authority of God's word is psychologically liberating. I mean, look at verse 133. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me, rule me. Let nothing else but you rule me. So what the psalmist is saying here is if God and his word is not ruling you, if God is not the ultimate authority of your life, then something else is going to be your master. It's inevitable. The Greek philosopher Euripides said it this way, no one is truly free. They are a slave to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their own will. In other words, if God is not the supreme authority of your life, your money, or the people you're trying to please, or something else is going to rule you. French philosopher Simone Will said, and think this, you have to think about what she's saying here, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such, things of this world. But in fact... Though unknown to oneself, imagine the attributes of divinity in them. She's saying, if God is not the ruler of your life, then you're going to be finding what you need from God in beauty, sex, power, politics, money, career, hobby, something that is just this world, just what people do. You're not even going to recognize that you are putting divine attributes and that thing has become a controller, a ruler, an idol in your life. If God is not the center of your life, something else is going to be. 
author and speaker Rebecca Pippert says that whatever controls you is your God. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whatever the Lord of our lives is. So you may think that by rejecting God's authority, you found freedom, but the opposite is true. You just sold your soul to another master that is not near as kind and as gracious as the loving Father, this God of authority. You have enslaved yourself to something else. And sadly, as Simone Weil says, you will never know that you're enslaved to those things until you are liberated by the word of God. You're blinded to the captivity until you're liberated by the word of God. Listen to verse 41 and 42. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promises. Then I can answer anyone. Notice that. I can answer anyone who taunts me. For I trust in your word. Notice the freedom from opinion that comes when your life is built on his word. Psalm 119 verse 46. I will speak of your statutes before kings and I will not be put to shame. The psalmist is saying, when the word of God became the ruling authority of my life, I no longer needed other people's approval. I no longer needed status. I don't even care what the king says. And if the king disagrees with me and chooses to put me to death, I will not be put to shame because I no longer live for status or money or human approval or other idols of the heart. Submitting to God's authority frees you and nothing is more psychologically liberating than that. Remember a moment ago I said recognizing the majesty of God's word will give you freedom and intimacy. Let me talk about intimacy. When you understand the absolute authority of God's word, it opens the door for intimacy with God, which is the exact opposite of what a lot of people think. And that's objection number two. Believing in an authoritative scripture that is binding on my life, people say, removes any chance for intimacy with God because they have misunderstood the authoritative God. They think that God's authority means he's this cold, dead, legalistic God out there with this mean, dictatorial leader, ruler who is barking out orders all the time and going to zap you if you don't get in line. That's the misunderstanding of this authoritative God. And because, of, because they see God as that way, that's what his authority looks like, there's no chance for an intimacy with that God. But I couldn't disagree more, first of all, that there's not a chance with intimacy and God's authority, and that's the wrong idea of God's authority. Your submission to the authority of God's word is actually what helps you escape the coldness and deadness of life and step into genuine intimacy with God. Listen, a personal relationship can only be personal and intimate if the other person in the relationship has the ability to cross your will. If they can't express their own will, if they're not able to contradict you, it's not a personal relationship. If you're in total control over your independence, where you're never contradicted, your will is never crossed, you can't call that relationship intimate. It can't be a personal relationship. It may be an exploitive relationship, but it's not an intimate one. So if, if you don't accept the Bible as the authoritative word of God, if there are some parts of the Bible that you don't accept because that's offensive to you, or you say, I don't believe in a God who would say that, then you can't really say you have a personal relationship with God. Because if God could never cross your will, if God could never contradict you, 
If God can never challenge your way of thinking and living, or if God can never tell you something you don't want to believe, you don't have a personal relationship with a personal God. You have a cardboard cutout, a God you've created in your own image that is more palatable to you than the God of the Bible. The German thinker and Christian martyr under Hitler's reign, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it like this. He says, if it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God that corresponds to me in some way who is obliging, who is connected with my own nature. In other words, you created a false God in your own image. But when you submit to God's authority, Bonhoeffer goes on to write, But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature, which is not at all congenial to me. An intimate personal relationship with God is one where you lose control, where your will is crossed, where you are contradicted, where your independence is tested. And every bit of that happens when you engage his word. And it tells you things you don't want to hear. And it asks you to do things that you want to do, don't want to do. And if God and his word don't have that kind of influence in your life, then you can't say that you have an intimate, personal relationship with God. One thing we know about the Psalms is there is a deep intimacy in the Psalms. I mean, the psalmist had this deep relationship with God. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart, largely because of what we read in the Psalms. An undeniable intimacy. But there's also undeniable arguing and bitterness and complaining, raw, like God, how do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? This isn't right. I mean, it is alive, it is authentic, and that's what makes it intimate. Submitting to God's authority and the authority of His Word is not a problem to intimacy, it is a requirement for true intimacy. To make things even more intimate, let me point something out to you. If you were to sit down, like we did over the last few days, and read Psalm 119 in its entirety, and I don't know if any of you felt this, but I did as I was reading it, it almost feels like the psalmist's adoration of the Scripture goes a little too far. It's almost like he personifies the Bible so many times, and it's almost like adoration moves to worship, and it it starts feeling a little bit like idolatry. I mean, listen to verse 24. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. How does a book become your counselor? And then it says, he's giving these odd human qualities to the scripture, verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I mean, what are we doing when we raise our hands? We're worshiping. So is the psalmist worshiping the scripture? Is this idolatry? Reading this has caused a lot of people to scratch their heads, but let me point out something that makes this a little clearer. Take a look at verse 37. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Anytime you see the phrase worthless things in the Bible, it's a reference to idols and idolatry. Okay, Turn my eyes away from idols and idolatry. Preserve my life according to your word. The word preserve here means save. Okay, Save my life through your word. Five times in Psalm 119, he uses that phrase. Save my life through your word. So let me ask you. Can a book be a savior? Can a book be a wonderful counselor? What 
if the psalmist's intent here was not to worship a book? What if, through the wisdom and sovereignty of God, the psalmist was prophetically seeing what you and I already know? Now, and from our vantage point in history, we see John 1.1 in the New Testament says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the Savior because Jesus is God's Word enfleshed. We use words to express ourselves. I mean, the way we communicate our deepest desires is through words. The way we let other people know what we're thinking is through our words. And just think about it. God has perfectly expressed himself in words in two ways. The written word, the scripture, number one, but number two, the scripture wasn't enough. He wanted to show us. This is the instruction in print, but I want to show you what it looks like when the, every iota of God's word is lived out in human flesh. I want to show you what that looks like, and I'm going to enflesh my word in my son so you have an idea of what it looks like to live every jot and tittle of the word of God in human flesh in every way. Remember what we said about intimacy a moment ago? A relationship can't be personal unless there's give and take, unless you give up some independence and your will is crossed. If you don't, then it's not a personal relationship. If it's just all one person controlling it, it's exploitive relationship. So I know when I said that, some of the cynics in the room, the deep thinkers in the room were saying, yeah, but in a relationship with an authoritative God, I'm the only one giving up anything. There's no give and take with God. My will is the only one being crossed. So how is my relationship with an authoritative God supposed to not be exploitive? Well, Think about what happened when the word was made flesh. In order for that to happen, Jesus surrendered his life for yours. He gave up the splendor of heaven. He gave up his will. He lost his independence for your sake. It's through the word becoming flesh that we can absolutely have an intimate and personal relationship with God. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane? You remember what he prayed? He said, Father, I don't want to do this. If there is any other way beside this suffering and this cross, do it another way. But then what did he say? Nevertheless, Not my will, not what I want. What you want is more important than what I want. His will was crossed. He surrendered control. In every other religion in the world, the gods of the other world religions only reveal themselves in text or holy books. In no other religion in the world does God's word become enfleshed but in Christianity. Because that is the only way to have a personal relationship with God. Why do I trust the written word of God? Because I have had an encounter with the word made flesh. I've met Jesus. I've met God in human form. And he is not cold and dead. He is intimate and personal. At the cross, Jesus became 
the sufficient sacrifice for every one of us that has not been able to keep every iota of the word because Jesus kept every iota of the word and he died as our substitute because he fulfilled every aspect of God's word. He saved us by being obedient to the word. There is a moment after Gethsemane, they're still in the garden, Jesus is done praying, the Roman soldiers come to arrest him. And you remember, Peter pulled out his sword. He's ready to fight. He cuts a guy's ear off in that moment. Matthew 26, this is what Jesus says. Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way. Jesus is about to die. Chaos is unleashed around him. There are torches and swords and guys are fighting, cutting off ears and body parts. And what he's thinking about is fulfilling the scriptures. Because he knows the only way you have a chance at a personal relationship with God is if he fulfills the scriptures. He embodied the word. He followed the word. He fulfilled the word. And now because of that, you and I can be saved. We can have a personal relationship with God. Through the word of God, both written and in flesh, you can find freedom and intimacy. So, may God help us today. May God deal with our unbelief toward his word. And may he forgive us for letting cultural sensibilities dictate what we believe about scripture instead of the other way around. And may God help those of us who press, profess belief, but have never let our lives align with truth. May we start acting on those beliefs, start acting on his word, so that beliefs become practices and those practices shape our character. May we actually start to recognize the majesty of the word of God. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place today and ask our prayer team if they would to come and prepare to serve you this morning. I, uh, I think it would be foolish not to give you this chance when we are talking about the power and the authority of God's word. When you submit to its authority, you tap its secret and you tap its power. And there are promises between the leather-bound pages of that book, promises for healing, promises for miraculous provision and you have need in your life the bible said the psalmist said i was young and now i'm old but i've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread there are promises for deliverance there's promises of hope he'll be away where there seems to be no way there's promises of salvation so if you're in this room today and you know all there is to know about religion but there's never been anything intimate and personal in your life he wants you to know religion and coldness and deadness and legalism that's not what this was all about. The God of heaven and earth has come for you to know him personally. And if you don't know him personally, there's no better day than today. Yesterday at that service, I gave the attendants in that service a number to text. If because of the way Captain Jamie Graham lived his life and now in his death, they wanted his faith, they wanted to follow his Jesus. Because he showed them the way, they just never took the step. We've received since yesterday over 20 texts from that service of people that said, I want to surrender my life to Jesus because Jamie lived it in front of me and I never took it serious. This has been a wake-up call for me. I, I want what God did in his life to happen in my life. 
Maybe you didn't even know Jamie Graham, but you're in this room today and you know religion, but you don't personally know God. You can know Him because Jesus took your place, surrendered His will for you to have access to a personal relationship. There is no greater miracle we will ever pray for at the front of this building than that one, to pray with you a prayer of surrender. Bow the knee to His Lordship. So Father, I just ask you today, your word has been settled in heaven, the book says. That's what your word says. So now I ask you to settle it in our hearts. Forever, O Lord, is thy word settled in heaven, scriptures. Will you let it be settled in our hearts today? Become Lord. Establish your kingdom in our lives. As people come for prayer, they have needs in their life, would you work miracles? And God, would you let the greatest miracle of all happen? As people living a cold, dead life find true freedom and intimacy in the one and only through Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with the living God. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction and grant them peace in Jesus' name?